1935, five Canadian baby girls, all sisters, edged out Niagara Falls on the list of Canada's most popular tourist draws. That year, up to 6,000 visitors each day took Route 11 into far northern Ontario for the sole purpose of gawking at the babies. By order of the provincial government, they had recently been removed from the care of their farmer parents, to be raised instead in a hurriedly built hospital situated not far from the family farmhouse. There they would have indoor plumbing, electricity, and a scientific upbringing, overseen by a full-time doctor and two full-time nurses. Three times a day, on cue, the girls were carried out to a grass-covered play area just a few yards from where a crowd waited for them. The audience was packed into a specially designed viewing arcade, tented and fitted with one-way screens so that the girls could never see who was making all the noise. Invariably, the moment they came into view, a warm sigh would float aloft, followed by coos, squeals, and scattered applause at the sight of history's first surviving identical quintuplets who had been given only hours to live the night they were born, in May of the previous year. Exotic by virtue of their genetic rarity, the Dion quintuplets imprinted themselves indelibly on their generation. They were a matched set, yet unmatched in the example they set of human resilience, and the most famous children on earth. The future Queen of England would visit them, Mae West, Clark Gable, and Betty Davis all made the trip north. So did Amelia Earhart, six weeks before her final flight, not to mention thousands of ordinary families on vacation. All were transfixed, but never, apparently, troubled by the bizarreness, even cruelty, of the arrangement. The girls' separation from their parents and from other children. Their confinement in a setting they were allowed to leave only three times over the course of nine years their government's exploitation of a random biological novelty to bring tourist dollars into a depressed province. It was estimated that the public exhibition of the girls, known as Quintland, increased revenues for Ontario by $110 million over those nine years. The family shared in some of the riches as well. By the time the girls' father sued successfully to reunite the family, well into World War II, he was driving a Cadillac. Money had also poured in from movie deals, contracts for exclusive interviews, and a series of endorsements that put the girls' faces in almost every kitchen in America, on calendars, bottles of caro syrup, and boxes of Quaker oats. For years to come, no seasonal ritual came or went, not Christmas Eve, not Halloween night, not Mother's Day without glowing newspaper and magazine stories catching readers up with the Dion Quince. It was no surprise, therefore, that the girls would also mean something to a little boy named Donald, who was growing up in Forest, Mississippi, a small town nearly as rural as theirs. Though only eight months older than them, Donald was already able to recite their names. Emily, Cecile, Marie, Yvonne, and... Annette. Except that, for Donald, these were not the names of girls. They were colors inside bottles. 
Annette and Cecile make purple, he would declare, as he sketched, handling his set of paint bottles. In a sense, he had it right, insofar as his Annette bottle contained blue paint and Cecile held red. But while his color theory was sound, his reaction to the girls was peculiar. Unlike everyone else, Donald was captivated not by the girls' humanity or the astonishing fact of their survival, but by the raw geometry of their sameness. They came in an identical set of five, just like his bottles, but they were also different, like the paint inside his bottles. It seems to have been this paradox that caught and held his attention. If it had only been a game he was playing, some deliberate silliness or make-believe, then what Donald called his paint bottles would never have mattered much to anyone but himself. Certainly, it would not be a story worth telling so many decades later. But he was serious. Blue was Annette, and red was Cecile. Relentlessly and earnestly, whether Donald was drawing with crayons or talking about a candy cane, he was inflexible about this, and much else besides. The word yes, for example, always had to mean one thing, and one thing only, that he wanted to be hoisted up onto his dad's shoulders. You was his fixed way of saying I, and vice versa. Some words, like chrysanthemum, business, and trumpet vine, he repeated endlessly, with no decipherable intention. He was once observed staring into empty space, writing letters with his fingers in the air, commenting as he went along. Semicolon, capital, twelve, twelve, slain, slain. I could put a little comma. The way he thought about numbers was also unique. When he was seven, an examiner asked him a question from the Binet-Simon IQ test, as it was then called. If I were to buy four cents worth of candy and give the storekeeper ten cents, how much would I get back? I'll draw a hexagon, he said in reply. Internally, the gears were obviously meshing, but they seemed to slip, critically, when the task was to communicate clearly with others. His was a language of hexagons and chrysanthemums, whether it made sense to others or not. Indeed, Donald showed scant interest in the inhabitants of the outside world, and that included his parents. Of all his peculiarities, this was the most difficult for them to accept, that he never ran to his father when he came home from work, and that he almost never cried for his mother. Relatives were unable to engage him, and when Santa showed up one Christmas, in what seems to have been a calculated effort to break through to the little boy, Donald paid him no heed whatsoever.